Welcome back to Space Waves. Uh, Travis Ryan here, uh, calling in from Haiku, Hawaii. I'm excited to introduce our, our next guest uh, and have him tell a little bit more about his background and his story. His name is Keith Cowling. Uh, Keith is in Ruston, Virginia today. And Keith, welcome to Space Waves. Oh, nice to be here. Thank you. So I think you know, we've got a, an audience that probably um, some of them know who you are, some of them don't. I think it'd be fascinating for you to give a little bit of back, about your background, how you got into space, uh, some of the uh, fun adventures that you've had with NASA over the years. Maybe just kind of give us a little overview of, of who you are and where you come from. Okay, well, easiest thing to say is I'm 65, so I'm an Apollo baby. I grew up during the Apollo era. Uh, grew up knowing that we were going to land on the moon by uh, the end of the decade, and we did. So I fell for it. I believed everything I was told and that we'd be on Mars by 1981. And, okay, I'll be getting my bachelor's degree. And that, Well, it didn't happen. Uh, I did end up at NASA. I was trained as a space biologist, but I got dragged into a whole bunch of stuff. I ended up... Uh, helping you design what is on the International Space Station now. Uh, and I quit that job uh, about 20 years ago, and uh, they were going to lay a bunch of people off at NASA. My friends were calling, saying, help, help. And the Internet was just starting. And I started a website thinking it would run for a week to highlight all the news about the layoffs. And suddenly uh, some reporters called up and accused me of being a journalist. So that's how I got into this. I was accused. I was impugned as being a journalist. And uh, here we are 25 years later, and I'm still running NASA Watch, which um, I don't know. Back in the day, I was coding, and I still do HTML by hand. So this was sort of a you know, seat of the pants operation. And uh, like the, you know, the, the kid who lives in your basement, he, I, he hasn't grown up and moved out of the house yet to get a job. So uh, decades later, I'm still doing this. Um, I've had an interesting opportunity to parlay my peculiar visibility. Uh, to do everything from raising funds to restore some old photos from the 1960s of the moon to uh, abducting a NASA spacecraft and bringing it back to life, uh, the IC3 mission. I've been to Devon Island in the Arctic three times. My company donated a greenhouse that was designed to operate as if it was on Mars, and I spent a month at Everest Base Camp while my astronaut friend climbed to the summit. So, you know, I, I sort of parlay this into a... Uh, uh, putting my money where my mouth is in terms of my my constant badgering of NASA to be more relevant and, you know, trying to get more creative with outreach and so forth. Well, you know, I went and did these things and I've done zero G training. I've done the centrifuge. I've done about everything you could do except go into space. And so you're going to ask me about that. And I'll answer right now. Of course I would. Interesting that you bring that up, Keith. You know, we just went back into space. Um, SpaceX helped NASA go to the space station, but really since 1972 is the last time we went you know, anywhere of significance uh, beyond the space station. You know, what do you think um, has been kind of the reason that NASA or the space community as a whole hasn't sent men really far into space in nearly 50 years? Well, you know, the Apollo thing was a, a creature of the moment. It was a race, you know, between the two superpowers. We won. And, you know, after the first landing, you know, suddenly they weren't showing everything in prime time on TV. And then, you know, you know, the, the public interest started to shrink. And then suddenly they canceled the last three missions. And there was a lot of been there, done that. And what did we use the old Apollo stuff for? We built a space station. We got bored with that. We let it fall on Australia. 
And then we didn't do much. Oh, but then we we're going to build a space shuttle, but it had nowhere to go. So we had to build somewhere for the space shuttle to go. And that cost a huge amount of money. I'm being cynical on purpose here. And we built the space station and that cost a whole bunch of money. And it always seemed to be that we were trying to get ready to do the next thing, but we were never really ready to go do the next thing. And so in 2003, we lost a shuttle and the rebound from the White House was uh, you know, based on two decisions. One, we just stop doing this or that we go back with purpose and go on and do something worthy of the loss that we had with Columbia and before that Challenger. And the decision was to go back to the moon. This is 2004 and we were supposed to be there by now. And uh, although we're still talking about going to the moon, every time a new administration comes in, it goes, well, we're going to go to the moon. No, we're going to go to the moon, then Mars. No, we're only going to go to Mars. No, we're going to go to an asteroid. Then the and, you know, a lot of people have whiplash at NASA now. It's sort of, where are we going today? And the problem is, is that every time we set our course towards a destination, there's a two-year, four-year clock ticking, either or uh, something that's going to pivot the direction. And just as we're getting ready to go one way, they say, no, let's go somewhere else. And so the net result is we, 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 we seem to want to go to places, but we cannot come up with a, the support infrastructure that lets you take the time it takes to do something like this, because you're constantly adjusting to somebody's change in, in ideas. And so I, I guess, you know, the spirit, the, the, the spirit is there, but the flesh is lacking or something like that. And, you know, now we're, we were supposed to be landing people on the moon by 2024. That was a date picked by the Trump administration that would coincide with the end of their supposed second term. Well, that ain't going to happen. And Congress didn't want it to happen that soon anyway. So now it's sort of a, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to still go back to the moon? If so, by when? And the Mars people are saying, hey, wait, we're still interested. And so we're sort of now waiting to see if yet another pivot will happen or if somebody will come in and just say, "Let come on, folks, let's just like pick a destination, focus on that, get that under our belt and go somewhere else. If you're going to ask me what I think is going to happen, I haven't a clue. Do you think, though, but I think you brought up a good you know, transition point. Do you think the private sector who is now coming into this has been mainly government led space exploration has now that the private sector is entering? Do you think that has the ability to maybe shift what has happened in the past and create a different destiny now that? you know, potential of making money and building a business and building a space economy, which was different than I think originally just exploration. Uh, how do you see that having a potential change in the shift of either philosophy or execution? Well, it's going to have a big one because it's interesting. I, I like a lot of people say they know Elon. Everybody knows Elon Musk. I met him 20 years ago when he was much younger and I was much younger. And he's remarkably consistent in what propels him. He, you know, he's like Jeff Bezos and a lot of these other folks. They read far too much science fiction when they were kids. Then they went off and made billions of dollars, and they don't know any better than to try to make this stuff happen, and they are, okay? And they have budgets of over which they have complete personal control or pretty much complete control that often dwarf the space budgets of entire nations. So they can go do this stuff, and to a great extent, we can't stop them and you just have to look down in Boca Chica in Texas to see the starship that Elon is building. He blows one up and builds another, blows one up. He has found a way to do this in rapid prototyping in a way that NASA is just incapable of doing. Then, of course, you look at Blue Origin and a number of the other companies, Rocket Lab and so forth. Um, they've managed to find some other like-minded people who don't know any better than to put millions on a rocket project. 
and the sophistication with which these companies can now not only accomplish these crazy ideas, like landing, it's routine now. You land a rocket, reuse it. I remember back in the day when you just assumed you threw it away. Now it's like, you mean you're not going to reuse it? And so that only happened because some really crazy people had just enough money. Elon will tell you that he was often, you know, hours away from being completely destitute after blowing through, you know, as he said, the, the, great, the easiest way to make a small fortune is to start with a big one. So here we are now with the capability, people more or less beyond government control, able to think of going to other worlds. And that's had an effect now on NASA because they're sort of thinking, you know what, maybe I ought to just buy seats on their rocket ship instead of spending a lot of money on an older way of doing it. We're not completely there yet. I mean, just the fact that the SpaceX uh, uh, Dragon has flown uh, people up to space station twice is quite a paradigm shift in and of itself. But this is going to have to be a bit more routine before NASA really starts to pivot away from its, you know, half a century way of doing things, which is big government programs and, you know, lots of money and there's never enough money. Right. Well, speaking of money, you know, you look, you mentioned the space race. Uh, the original one was really a political uh, kind of contest, an art flexing contest. Now that we've, you know, somewhat ascertained that there might be an incredible amount of water and minerals and asteroids uh, in close proximity to Earth, you know, maybe on the moon, it's hard to tell, you know, in, indefinitely. Could could the drive for financial gain maybe, you know, outside of the U.S. and other countries or, or the private sector enough? Could that in addition to the private sector coming into it, the future I mean, promise of undiscovered minerals could be something that, you know, you've got publicly traded companies that have said within 10 years, they see themselves mining asteroids in space. Do you think that's a tangential kind of focus on the space um, mission as we're putting people into space? Or do you think that all of the, the privatized will go towards people, towards foundational work, towards mining? How do you see that? That And maybe what would you think could be the first component of an actual space economy? Well, I think, you know, it's like anything that, you know, you kind of, if you know that companies are arguing with each other and, and trash talking each other, you know that there's capability. There's actually a there there. There's companies that could do this and they're now trying to get their market share. And you've got all these constellations that are going to be put up. You can't have all of them, but we're not sure what the shakeout is going to be there. In terms of what we do in space and why we do it and why you make money right now, launching things into space and operating them there is where the money is. Going there to get something and do something with it, either there or bring it back here, maybe that's the next big thing. On the moon, the resources there are likely to have their best use in an in situ you know, or in place use to produce rocket fuel and you know materials needed for life support on the moon, maybe for you know spacecraft that go elsewhere. That would require a bit of an actual industry there. Um, I was just on a teleconference today, for example, there's a, an experiment called uh, BioAsteroid. This is a little thing about this big, and they're taking an actual piece of a, you know, a meteorite, which is part of an asteroid, back into space, and they're using several microorganisms to see if they can, you know, mine, and this is actually, it's called biomining, where you actually have microorganisms dissolve rock, and then you pull the liquid out, and you get the stuff that you want. The idea being that you would use this in space to process asteroid materials for use in space. And they were very, very careful to, this, to say, we're not talking about, our, our research is not talking about bringing it all back, because they say, oh, there's this asteroid out there made of unobtainium, and if it came back to Earth, it would be worth a trillion dollars. Well, you know what? If you brought it back, it wouldn't be a trillion because you just blown the market apart with something that was once rare, which is now common. It's like aluminum. 
It used to be so you know rare that it was you know worth more than gold. Well, now we throw it away. And yet, if you're if you're you know these sort of these false economies of going to get you know nickel iron from an asteroid and bring it back in mass quantities that exceed what you can find on Earth, well, it's going to suddenly become very cheap. So you know that's part of the problem with some of these scenarios that you hear thrown out in the newspapers. Usually, that's where you see it. That actually doesn't make sense if you know anything about economics. What you really want to do is go out and do something and bring it, either do it there or bring it back that simply can't be gotten on Earth. And that could be making materials in a novel fashion because of um, microgravity. Uh, it could be, you know, in many cases, some companies have made money by finding a cheaper way to send a mission somewhere than selling the data rights back to NASA. And NASA says, well, gee, I just, you know, buy the data rights. I don't have to send the mission. It's a lot cheaper for me. But I don't think anybody's come up with a killer app per se. But I'll tell you one thing. If you think back to Federal Express, what did you do before Federal Express? You planned. You know, now if it's like, you know, I mean, this truck's driving by my house all the time that I can order something, it'll be here in an hour. That removes a cost barrier to, to the point where you think, I don't care how I get it. I just want the thing that you're going to get for me. And that's what happens when you lower launch costs. Suddenly, the notion of sending something into space and bringing it back goes from, yeah, you know, I don't have $100 million to CubeSats, which you can fly for like 100000 bucks. Changes your whole mode of thinking. And with that comes new ideas that, you know, again, it's like, you know, there's things on the space station right now that where they're launching CubeSats. I worked on that station in the 80s in the 90s where everything was the size of a refrigerator and the notion of launching little satellites from the space station my god the safety people were already mad at me because uh, of other things that i wanted to do but because of the fact that the station was designed to be forward and backward compatible these crazy ideas that emerge only after you suddenly discover how to do something have come to fruition so i've gone in a big circle here but a lot of it's sort of where you stand depends on where you sit are you going to look for something new or do you have a new thing that you want to deploy there? And is there an actual market that's real and not one that the government imagines by pouring money into something? I mean, it really comes back to those economics course that a lot of us never took in college that maybe we should have. Well, you, you, you did an interesting segue and brought the conversation back to earth for a moment. You mentioned FedEx. You talked about the you know, kind of the emergence of the on-demand economy, trucks driving by your house. You know, maybe uh, one of the things that we've vetted, at least here, talk about a freight waves, you know, the, the concept of cargo rockets, right? Like today, most of our imports come from thousands of miles away across an ocean, moving on a ship in containers, slow. Um, it certainly doesn't meet the needs of, you know, real on, on demand. A lot of containers are booked for buying things from Asia into, into early next year already. So what about practicality of, you know, applying rocket technology on Earth or near Earth um, to fly cargo, cargo missions from you know, China to the West Coast? Do you think that those things are practical? Do you think that those things are much more near term than doing things out, you know, up above the Earth in orbit? Yeah, I do. And, and, and if you've watched what Elon's doing, he's he's been thinking dual path, double use, triple use. For his Starship uh, notion, he's built. It's sort of like he's building a 747, uh, except he has a cargo variant. He has a high, you know, long distance variant. He has a longer upper deck for more. You know, he's thought through how to do this. Whereas one version of the Starship uh, does, you know, ballistic hops, suborbital hops from one part of the planet to the other. 
and virtually the same machine, you know, fueled a slightly different way and on a different trajectory can go into low Earth orbit, or it can dock with another one up there. So he's thought this through so that he's sort of mix and matching the parts, but there's a commonality to all of it. And then if he's smart, he'll probably pick the one that has a, you know, can generate cash flow to feed the other stuff, which if you listen to Bezos, he says, well, I'm going to put, you know, X billion every year into, you know, my space stuff. But where does he get that? He gets it from you and I buying stuff on Amazon. So these large ecosystems, now that people are starting to realize that, you know, you can do this, you do have to have something at, the, at some point that actually makes real money that comes from somewhere else, from customers. And, you know, what Elon has talked about doing is having these offshore platforms to launch rockets, whether they're to orbit or for suborbital hops. And the fact that these things are designed to be reused many, 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 many times utterly changes the discussion. And so, I mean, you could literally hop this thing back and forth and back and forth and then maybe power wash it to get the scorch marks off and then do it again the next day. And, uh, you know, again, what does it cost when all you're buying is a bunch of uh, natural gas and liquid oxygen and you're not really worrying about buying a new rocket each time? And it gets down almost to the economics of maybe the Concorde when it used to fly across the ocean. And so, but again, it, it does come down to somebody being, you know, especially since private capital is involved. At the end of the day, somebody's investing in this, so they've got to say, well, X years out, what's your market going to be? Um, you know, are you just, get, you know, it's like these people who want to buy the flights in Virgin Galactic, are they all really going to buy their tickets? Are people really, you know, how many people are there that will spend a couple hundred thousand dollars for five minutes in space? I want to go there and stay there for a week. I don't want to go there for five minutes, you know? And so somebody's got to really think through this market here. But, you know, if, if the price of bouncing across the world on a suborbital ballistic uh, hop is akin to a Concorde launch, a Concorde flight, maybe twice that, you've got a market. But you got you got to be able to deliver. And it's got to be reliable. And it's got to be at least not as at least as safe as airline flights. But I got to think that a lot of people would just take the flight just to go to outer space. Right. Okay, so another maybe when uh, I think this was a Google idea years ago, there was a there was talk of a space elevator, you know, a, a, a container to, to bring things into space. Do you think that's plausible? Is that silly science fiction? Is that maybe more practical than anything else? Because you know, it could be done. What what are your thoughts on you know that as a as a concept? It, 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 it's an interesting one, and of course, if you read the books about how to do space elevators, Arthur Clarke really sort of came up with a lot of this. Uh, and my business partner actually visited him in Sri Lanka before he died and actually got permission to post. We have a space elevator website, which we don't put a lot on, but we did that for a while. But, you know, the sort of the basics are if you can get something that tall to go into orbit, the amount of electricity needed or energy to take you up there is like, you know, elevators. I mean, it's it's minuscule. But the notion up until recently was can you get a material that's light enough yet strong enough uh, that you can actually build something that will work and it's dynamic enough to you know deal with the stresses and force that are you know required well now with you know graphene and some of the nano materials that we have we're probably in the verge of that being you know possible but then again well, what are you going to do with it on the other end right now what's up there it's like seven people and there's like one space station and china's going to build one so there'll be two I mean, just because it's it's like some of these government projects that build a bridge to nowhere. You build this great freeway to get somewhere. It's like in West Virginia, you have these freeways and it's really great. And suddenly it stops because they ran out of funding. It's There's got to be something on the other end to which you send this stuff cheaply. You know, and I haven't quite heard what that is yet. 
Uh, but if it's a hotel on the other end and, you know, you can find somebody who's going to put the many, many, many billions of dollars into this thinking that you can, you know, work backwards from how much money you're going to make. Well, God bless you. But I think there needs to be more up there so that more people will say, you know what, I got this up here. But boy, if I could just cut my costs by of delivery by 50 percent, I could have 100 times as much stuff. That's when I think the impetus to do this will form. And every five years we wait. It becomes even more possible due to advances in materials and so forth. Right, so it, it's coming down to economies of scale, but this time at the space level, the, the scale of space. Yeah, economics works the same in outer space as it does on Earth. It, people seem to think it's some magical thing in space. Well, there is, but at the end of the day, you know, somebody's got to make a profit, and if you can, it'll happen. If you don't, it won't. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Keith. That was that was really, I mean, awesome from my perspective. I'm hoping that our audience uh, got to learn, you know, like we did. I think it's, I think people will probably go check out your background and learn a little bit more about you. I certainly have had uh, fun educating myself. I appreciate your your approach and your your uh, ability to to call call NASA out to be a bit more challenging. You know, you've been there, you've been worked on the insides of NASA. You've done some very interesting things that you shared with us in your intro. Um, so we uh, really appreciate your time. Um, we hope that we can talk to you again in the future as we continue to do these events, and we will send it back to the studio. Thanks, guys. My pleasure.